So, Rage Kitty,、mm -hmm. I have been thinking a lot about money lately. Oh, me too. Mega Millions. I actually never buy lotto tickets, and I bought one. <laughs> It was the first time in my life I've ever bought a lotto ticket. Really? And Did you win? Yes. <laughs> cool. Side note, unrelated.、Uh, I may need to borrow some money later. <laughs> so,、uh, the reason I've been thinking about this, though, is because I'm at this point in my life where it feels like my future is just kind of like aggressively staring at me,、mm. um, because I am in my、uh, mid thirties. <laughs> And I'm thinking a lot about like what is next for me and what is next for Christine and I. And as a part of those thoughts, these like mental minefields come up. And I think money is the biggest one.、Mm. It's it's not a point of contention or anything really, but it's also not not uncomfortable. You know, like、yeah. to achieve my goals and our goals and our wants and needs and desires, money just helps. And You know, it's hard to travel and to buy a house and to start a family if in your savings account you've got navel lint and free burrito coupons. <laughs> you have those. Yeah, it's my side note. It's my I may need to borrow a coupon later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. There's so there's a saying, right? And and I agree with it that money doesn't buy you happiness, but it does provide options. But to me, it's really funny how I wrap my head around that because I get this number in my mind, this amount that I'm supposed to have in the bank, and then I hit that number and I hover at it for a while, and I'm all calm, cool, collected, and warm underneath my nice blanket of security, and then I come up with a larger number to completely <laughs> obsess about. I used you know? to do that until I came up with a better strategy. What is it? Avoidance. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, how is that working out for you? I don't know. I'm not paying attention. That's how avoidance works, Patty. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, I was thinking a lot about this when I had a chat with Carl Richards. Carl is a born and bred Utah native. He's this voracious biker and skier. He's also a certified financial planner and the author of the blog and the book, The Behavior Gap. Plus, he writes the New York Times column, The Sketch Guy, and he's got this uncanny ability to simplify complex ideas, especially ones that involve money. But for a guy who makes a living helping people manage their bankrolls, he's got a really interesting idea about dollar dollar bills. I believe in choosing experiences over stuff, and maybe even over security. So why does an experience, an adventure, have value? And what is it? And how in the hell is that more valuable than security? I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. I was the brand, the newest hired a landscaping company, right? So I was literally digging ditches for a living when my wife and I got married. And I came home、oh, one day. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I came home one day, and she had the help wanted ads, and she's like, "I'm looking for a job." And I said, "Well, you have one." And she said, "I know. I'm I'm looking for you." And I said, "Well, <laughs> what, what 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 have you found?" And she found what we both thought was a security. 
like something to do with security you know like bouncer or mall cop or uh-huh. and I thought jeez oh, I'd be gr- I'd be great I could work at night still go to school full time anyway I go to apply for this job it turns out it wasn't a security job it turns out it was a securities job and I, oh. I of course at that point in my life didn't didn't know the difference um so I quickly found myself in the finance industry. I barely know the difference now. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, me, me too. But so, um, like, you're with, you're doing finances, but you also like maybe have a taser, is what I'm thinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so some exactly. combination of both. I kept wondering, like, when when do my kung fu skills come into use? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I I got into the business by accident, but I quickly quickly learned that it wasn't about money, right? Like, uh-huh. especially when you're helping individuals make decisions about what to do with their money, you quickly understand at least, you know, any real financial advisor worth anything would quickly understand that we've got to get to sort of like, what is this all about? Like, what's your purpose? Why are you doing it? And so that's kept me interested in this industry for a long time. And that's expanded beyond money to just generally like, how can I help people more carefully align what they say is important to them with how they use their time and their money? And we started sort of calling that the behavior gap, the gap between what you sort of say is important to you and what how you use your time and your money. Carl grew up in Salt Lake City and Park City, Utah, but really he's a child of the Wasatch Mountains. As a kid, he was kind of like Huck Finn, a lovable troublemaker. He was not a very inspired student, was constantly being told, if you just focus on schoolwork and live up to your potential. Really, he was more interested in the lessons being taught to him when he and his friends went climbing or skiing or biking or exploring any and everything outside. For college, Carl stayed close to those outdoor teachers. He attended the University of Utah. He majored in finance there. And then he started down a career path that would have many, many many different trails. What's your job? What does your business card say? Because you do a lot. It's really funny. We we have this conversation a lot around the dinner table. Oh, we don't really know exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I, it depends on how, it depends on like how interested I am in a conversation, right? So uh-huh. if I'm not interested in a conversation, I just say I'm, a, I'm an author. Um, and, and, Actually, that one, that one's actually the one that maybe like, okay, we'll have a little conversation. I'm an author because normally people are curious about that. Yeah. Um, I can say, uh, but really what I consider myself is, um, I, I, my job is to observe things in the world and comment on them. That's funny that you would say, you know, if you're, if I'm not interested in this conversation or slightly interested, I would just say author. And to me, what would stand out, like if, if you and I didn't know one another and we were like at a barbecue or something, and I was like, hey, Carl, like, what do you do? And you're like, I'm a certified financial planner. I'd be like, oh, man, this guacamole is good, isn't it? You know, like I just, no, I no, guess. I was going to say, I was going to tell you that. I was going to say, actually, the answer I use on planes uh-huh. when people when I don't want to talk to my seatmate, when I'm just like, man, I'm tired. I don't want to talk to the person. If they say, what do you do? I say, I don't use the word certified. I just say, I'm a financial planner, really like, like boldly. And they clearly hear life insurance salesperson and just go, oh, that's good. And they open the in-flight magazine. Right. (laughs) It's just like headphones in. (laughs) Yeah. Headphones in, in in-flight magazine. I'm eating peanuts. I'm not talking to this human. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Totally. So here's the deal. Carl is a financial advisor. Sometimes. 
He's also a professional doodler, but not like in the corners of notebooks like everyone did in high school math class. Actually, Patty, some of us were actually paying attention in high school. Not Whatever, everyone can being tall and loud for their future job. <laughs> anyway, Carl creates illustrations to accompany his New York Times column. It's called The Sketch Guy. And that's not it. He does more. Okay, so how does one really become a certified financial planner, a speaker, an author, and also a drawer of things? It would be convenient to, and, and I could tell you a nice story looking backwards um but the way it really happens is quite by accident humans make plans and god laughs and so that's what happened right i'm sitting as a like traditional financial planner at a big brokerage firm that you would recognize and i'm trying to explain something to my clients who i mountain bike or climb with and their eyes are glazing over and i'm like no like this so i out of an act of desperation i jump up at the whiteboard and i draw like some circles and squares with arrows and they're like oh yeah now I get it and then I'm like oh if they if they like that maybe if I put that on a piece of paper and send it to some people maybe they would like oh they like it and then I put it on a blog and then like one of the biggest uh, breaks if you'll call it that in my career has been the the relationship going on almost 10 years now with the New York Times so been writing that sketch guy column for 10 years just about every week and I didn't have any writing background um so you know to get an email somebody and I can trace who I actually went back and traced how it happened somebody who liked my little blog and at the time I thought it was my mom and my sister right reading it and it turns out my sister was lying it was just my mom for sure it turns out there was another guy and I, right now I'm blanking on his name and I promised I'd never forget his name because he changed my life. This other guy sent a post, right? Like back in the sort of blog, blog post days, which I guess still exists, mm -hmm. to the editor at the Times who gets, uh, I don't know what the right number would be, but I, I would be tempted to say hundreds of those. Uh, I mean, I know hundreds right. a week. I don't know that it's hundreds a day. Right. right? Everybody's pitching those guys. And girls. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, this thing hit his inbox at a time when it worked for him, right? Like, and he opened it and saw something. He replied to me and said, you know, Carl, I love this. Would you do it for us? When you have as many jobs as Carl has, you got to work your ass off. And with hard work comes some reward. As in financial reward. With each new job, each new step on his career path, Carl felt more and more secure. And he started to accumulate stuff. And he began to investigate why some of his possessions gave him a good feeling, while others gave him a not-so-good feeling. We're always imposing our values on other people's lives. And I, I remember having this experience with a, it was a really good friend of mine who lived close by and we were talking one day and he was like, man, I can't believe the neighbors just bought, you know, whatever the new car. I think it probably was a car. And, um, you know, they spent this much money on that. That's so, that's crazy. That's crazy. And then I was just in my head, I was calculating the value of the bikes in the garage and just thinking like, isn't it interesting that the neighbor may be thinking, gosh, I can't believe that those guys spend so much money on bikes. Right. Yeah. But to me, 
you know, I I love really timeless, and I happen to think that this should be everybody's definition of what you want. <laughs> um, so I'm going to impose my values on everybody else, which is sort <laughs> of like I love anything I buy. Like it drives me crazy to buy a printer because uh-huh. you can't find one. I've done hours and hours of research to find like the German Swiss printer that lasts forever and gains patina as it ages and like it doesn't exist but that's the kind of stuff i like right like a couch like i don't want to buy a piece of garbage couch that we're Mm going to replace in two years i want a couch that's going to age right so stuff to me stuff to me would be the opposite of that right just like you know stuff that doesn't last stuff that we're going to throw away stuff that's disposable um you know an inkjet printer would be stuff so stuff is kind of um disposable items or quickly obsolete items that are very quickly obsolete. Yeah, I think that's reasonable, right? Like I've written a bit about that, that, you know, I, I, I think I wrote once about my crazy expensive road bike and how it was the, the cheapest road bike I could have ever purchased because I kept it for 12 years. Right. Like, and loved Mm -hmm. it every time I, every time I cleaned it, I liked it more. You know, right. Like it was like this thing. And when I was done, I was going to hang it over the fireplace. I sold it and forgot about that promise. But, (laughs) but yeah, I think like, like, uh, you know, Arcteryx is an interesting example of this to me, right? Like I would much rather spend, I'd, and if I didn't have the money, I'd wait. I'd much rather, rather spend more money on a piece of gear that I felt like was made, you know, like this is a crazy example. My Arcteryx, my touring pants, I can't even remember what they're called. There's a, you know, you're always unlatching and relatching your, um, your AT boots or, or, uh, reaching down to whatever, whatever. I don't even remember what we call that. Right. Like release it so you can skin up. Right. Um, the right. flat, the flipping flex. into walk mode, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Flipping, we're always reaching out, and you know how what a pain that is when the when you have to use both hands to reach across to hold one leg of your pants to zip the cuff up, uh, zip the cuff up and down, right? right? And my Arcteryx pants, you don't have to use both hands, right? Like they they thought through the design of that zipper, yeah. And that's just a silly little example of like. I remember when I reached down and zipped those. I was like, oh my gosh, they thought through this. Like right. I would rather pay. I would rather pay up for that experience right. and say, I'm not going to need to replace these for a very, very long time. So it, 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 that, to me, the stuff would be the opposite of that. A cheap pair of pants that I know I'm going to have to blow through in a season, right. and next season I'm going to have to buy a new pair, and the next season I'm going to have to buy a new pair, all because I think I'm saving money. What it boils down to is when it comes to stuff, not all stuff is created equal. I was in my gear shed the other day and I was looking at all my skis and I just got another pair of brand new skis and I'm at, um, let's see, I'm at, I'm at 12 pairs of skis and probably five of them. I would still ski maybe six. Okay. So let's talk about this real quick. I can't Patty. Let's talk about this. So, so (laughs) when you, when you go, and and the the cool thing about this is there's no like this is like there's no right answer which is awesome when you go to look at those seven that you'll never use yeah you don't feel do you feel do you feel constricted or like opened like do you feel a burden or do you feel a blessing oh i definitely feel a blessing I mean, I think about like, um, like there's a pair of, um, K2 Obsessed, right? And I patrolled 
in Telluride on those things every single day. And every time I see those things, they have, uh, they bring up so many good memories. I mean, I smile every time I look at those skis, any skis that are, that, that I own, I smile. And I just, I don't know. I guess I just don't want to throw the memories away. I don't want to throw the friends away, Carl. No, and I, I can totally, completely relate to that. And I don't think there's anything in the world. Like my Dina Star Verticals, which were the first pair that I put those old three-pin, like three-screw, you know, with no plate, like 1990, 1990, uh, man, what was that, like 93 or 94, 92, we spent a season in Breckenridge, and we had three-pin bolted onto like... 212 (laughs) (laughs) Dina star verticals with a solo, uh, a solo snowfield like leather boots. And then we would take the the orange Lang cuffs and strap them to the leather boots. And um, like those, like if I still had those verticals hanging on the wall, I'd be like, Oh yeah. I would look at them and smile. Yeah, absolutely. That's what make me happy. And especially like my Tua, my, my Tua Montes, right? Like, especially the Tuas, because you're like, yeah, I'm a real telemarker if I ski on Tuas. And bikes, same way, like, I regret. I sold my road bike last year, my moots, um, and I regret it, like, because the patina on that bike, right? Like, go. I think that's what you're talking about is, pat- I like the word, like, pat- that patina, yeah. right? It's 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 emotional patina. Um, yeah. And so, like, nothing wrong with it. I But I would walk into that shed, and I, I would struggle... The conflict with me would be the, the the burden of stuff, and this purely personal would be this. Uh, there would be this give and take between the memories and the burden of stuff, and I would just one day go ah, out, and um, I would take your friends, and I would you would murder yeah. my friends. See, that's what we're talking about. Like, <laughs> yeah, I would take them out in the street and summarily execute. Yeah, them. Yeah, it would be like it'd be like slow motion reservoir dogs. Like that's what I'm talking about. Like listen to yourself talking <laughs> about these memories of these skis, <laughs> and you wish you had them, but really just bap, ah, fuck it, I'm throwing it out. No, man, don't no, throw I away know. the emotions. I, don't throw I, away. Look, the, I have I've had this exact heart. I've had this ex, I've had this exact same conversation with a friend of mine. Um, her name is Christy about her stock portfolio. And she owned Disney and Liongate. And she happens to be uh, you know, pretty heavily involved in the entertainment industry. And she mm-hmm. had like and she knew that they didn't fit her life now. Her and by that I mean like the portfolio didn't match what the goals were for her investments. It just didn't match. And she knew that. And, and, and it was time to sell them. And she knew that it was the right thing to do. And she called me, she's like, You're gonna take my she said that. She said, You're gonna take my my like my favorite people out in the street and kill them like you're getting <laughs> you're making me and I'm like no I'm not making you I'm just suggesting that this is their so I I I can I I understand I like I kind of wish I had a little cabin that was going to be in the family forever mm-hmm. and those skis and that bike were on the wall right and you'd walk in and go oh yeah that's when dad skied on 210 Dina Star verticals well, if you had the cabin, it sounds like to me you just end up throwing that thing away too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I told you, like I like to have things with patina. Right. So here's this is the interesting piece about this to me is well, I hope your kids get some patina. I'm worried about your kids getting thrown away now too. Poor guy. Exactly. That's exactly right. As soon as I'm done with the usefulness, <laughs> like as soon as I can't wash dishes anymore, they're out. 
Don't worry, Carl's not going to throw his kids away. <laughs> I don't think you're even allowed to do that. <laughs> Wait, garbage pail kids, that was a thing. Remember them? No, I'm not stuck in the 80s. Oh, but sorry, Carl bro. does want to throw away the misconception of security. I just honestly believe it's it doesn't exist. Like, I, I think, I mean, sorry, I should be careful about this. It doesn't, if you're looking to outside things, including money, Possessions are things. Security's myth. Like I, I, I know people with, I know people with hundreds of millions of dollars right. that are the most insecure people I've met. Um, really? Now I know people with that much that are secure as well. So all I'm saying is money and things won't provide security. I think I think uncertainty is reality right okay. right that we are all just and the sooner we learn to kind of surf uncertainty which is actually really really a fun way to live the sooner we learn that you know tomorrow we could you know the range of potential outcomes in our lives is really wide right like we could end up inheriting a whatever a island in the Caribbean, or we could end up under a bridge. And the sooner we accept that, the sooner we're free. I'm still working really hard at that. I'm not very good at it yet, but I know it's true. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting to me because like when I think of security, like especially now in my 30s, I think of like some type of like financial stability, right? The hedonic treadmill is just that we adjust our lives to the thing. Like you buy a new car, it's awesome for a week. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And then then you're used to it. And in in six months later, you're like, I might need an. Oh man, that, that Volvo was nicer, right? Like, so we 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 do that all, and that's the same with money in the bank, right? Like, and it's it's really again, I'm I'm uh, we got to be sort of sensitive here that I I think most of your listeners are, uh, you know, that there's some basic level of security, right? Like, I'm not obviously I'm not talking about people who have you know and we unfortunately this is way too common right where there's no base level of security at all that that that's a different discussion but most of the people who have the ability to you know think about expending time outdoors right like there's yeah. some base level of security and they know that stuff more more stuff at, at any level independent of where you are more stuff and more money isn't going to equal more security and I just know, like, I know that to be true. Now, what could bring security is internal. That's a that's a different discussion. Like, can you get self-secure? And it's closer to self-esteem than it is to this thing we call security. Right. But I, it, money won't, if you're, if you're a little psychotic around money, more money won't solve that problem. Carl should know. He's lived this. Here's the deal. Carl is, by any measure of the word, a success. He cut his teeth working for huge, big-name financial firms before setting out on his own. He sold his consulting business in 2012. Today, he can afford high-priced adventure gear and travel for himself and his family. I mean, in 2016, he moved his family to New Zealand before ever visiting, just cuz. But that doesn't mean he's never faced financial struggle. Coming up after the break, how Carl's world got turned upside down. 
it's funny because you think, you know, when something bad happens to you or something good happens to you, you think the whole world knows, right? Like, and yeah, I realize that's totally. a sign of a pretty self, that's a sign of a pretty self-centered person, but I, I struggle with that just like everybody else does. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I wrote, uh, I wrote a column um, about this that ended up on the front page of the business section of the New York Times. It was the whole front page above the fold on a Saturday. Um, so a few people saw it. It was about us losing our house in Vegas um, in the financial crisis, you know, meltdown thing and and the ensuing impact both from sort of a health perspective and a financial perspective about it. When the mid-2000s housing market bubble finally popped and the recession hit, millions of Americans lost their homes. In fact, the number of foreclosures mirrored those of the Great Depression. The article Carl just referred to is his 2011 New York Times story, How a Financial Pro Lost His House. In it, he details how he, a financial wizard, got into a mortgage he and his family couldn't afford, and what happened when the market crashed. The short of it, they lost their home in Vegas, and they had to move into a rental back in Utah. Plus, Carl ended up in the hospital with an unknown stomach ailment. His anxiety over money and the stress of providing for his family was wreaking havoc on his body and his mind. His hospital stay got his physical health back in check, but his emotional health was still uneasy. I remember saying to my wife, like thinking like failure, like the problems, look at what I've done. And and I remember one day she said to me, she's like, Carl, get over it, right? Like, let's, let's learn what we can. If we have to move into a condo or rent an apartment, like, We'll, we'll rent an apartment. Like, you know what I mean? And I remember walking out just being like, oh, oh, all right. Like, yeah, I mean, we've still got some, we still got to deal with the consequences and the responsibility and all that stuff. We don't want to shirk any of that. But guess what? Like, the family is okay. And it's not my wife going like, yeah, it, it's not all the things I had projected. The story. Yeah, I had total had, letdown. Yeah, loser. that's not the yeah. story that I told myself. Totally. But, you know, life for me... Um, was about trying to find security. And to a large degree, it, it like I'm still detoxing from that. But I think a lot of that came from my, at least I point, it may just be a story I've made up. Um, I point to my parents' divorce and the ensuing, you know, what I perceived as the ensuing kind of struggle to provide security for our family. Um, that you know, and again, I'm not complaining. We grew up in a great neighborhood with car, with a car and running water and electricity. And I went to a f- fantastic school I didn't want for yeah. very much. But it seemed like money was a little bit about, a little bit stressful, right? Like, well, like most families, right? Money was a little bit stressful. My, my, my wife had a different perspective. And um, it's not even necessarily related to anything like I'm not pointing at something my mom or my dad did wrong and her something her mom or dad did right. I'm just saying it's so interesting that your perspectives can be different based on a a really weird cocktail of your experience and your own, the, the way you view the prism through which you're viewing those experiences. So my wife grew up just, you know, a couple miles away from me, we went to neighboring high schools. We, by every outward uh, kind of definition, you would say we were in the, exactly the same socioeconomic class and we were having a, the same socioeconomic experience. Um, but my wife's, you know, family was a, kind of a series of um, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial adventures. Like her dad was a real estate developer and 
real estate development is by, you know, he's a solo real estate developer for years and it's by definition risky. So my wife came from the perspective of like, hey, money is about taking opportunities, making risk, dealing with uncertainty. Some work, some don't. Like be as responsible as you can, but you got to realize like that that's the nature of being an entrepreneur. That's that was her view. My view was like, gosh, how are we going to pay the bills? Right. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, geez, is there going to be enough? So to a large degree, for some reason, she came with kind of an abundance view and I came with a little bit of a scarcity view. And then you threw us in a marriage and nobody warned us. Right. Like nobody told us about this. Nobody talked to us about this. And again, that's we're not pointing to anybody. That's anybody's fault. It's just nobody talks about this stuff. So that was one thing that helped change my view over time was my wife gently and sometimes not so gently, but mainly gently saying, hey, like, what if we looked at this from a slightly different angle? What if we said this was an opportunity? What if we said that failure actually wasn't a failure? Like, we're trying to get rid of failure. We're trying to think of you either win or you learn. Yeah. We we may all claim that we would, tra- oh, I'd trade my struggles for that person's struggles in a heartbeat. But the reality is there's still struggles. And wh- wherever you are, whether you're bumping up against... 60 hours a week, you know, and I'm, I'm making some assumptions here. I'm not talking about not being able to eat tomorrow, right? Like I, I, I understand that's a different category altogether that would just take a whole episode of this for us to work through emotionally. But the sort of the group that we're talking to right now, our struggles are all a range of, and and we look at them and go, look, I, I wish I could just afford my season pass or yeah, an experience, Carl. That's great. I have to work every weekend. And then there's other sets of struggles with, you know, friends I know that have more money than all of us are just like, oh, and I say this all the time. Like, oh, I wish I could just trade places with so-and-so. Right. No, you don't. Right? Like, so it's the challenge, of course, is just saying, all right, the thing that matters is where am I and how do I sort through what I'm feeling and doing and acting and how can I align what I say is important to me with my use of time and money. Yeah. And, and, and that's the stuff that really matters. After the experience of losing his home, Carl began to look inward to investigate why he felt the need to be a provider. And he realized what was truly motivating him was his family. My son, Sam, who's our third kid, he turns 17 in September. So I'm realizing every once in a while, we just I just counted the months yesterday, actually, 17 months till that kid probably heads off to school, right? And I've got two daughters now that are out of the house. One just finished a summer as a river guide in Stanley on the salmon, and, and the other just returned home from volunteer service in, in Italy and... They're both at the University of Utah, and every time I see a picture of them, right, doing something, they spent the weekend together up in Stanley this week and sent us pictures of them out, you know, doing the things that they love. And those moments, every every one of those moments is more important than any of the stuff I have, right? I wish I, and I wish I could act that way more, right? Like I wish I, that gap between what I'm saying right now and my own self-examined behavior you know, I used to beat myself up with that gap, right? I, and, and, ah, oh, look, you know, now I just lean into that gap a bit and go, okay, that's what, you know, that gap's called being human. 
Um, what can we do to close that just a little bit today? Oh, darn it, it opened up again. Oh, what do you, like, that's the struggle of being human. So I think it's the reason experiences are more valuable, at least to me, and I think there's some pretty sound research behind it to most of us, is because it's what we remember, right? It's, it's, it's the, the experiences are the stuff of a rich life. Um, it's what our, it's crazy to me when we sit down with our kids and we do like that, like, hey, what, what was fun for you this year or something? And I remember having this experience. We had this amazing year once where like just from a confluence of events, like work travel meant that I, we could go to some places that we'd never really been before as a family. And it's like all these things happened. We, we, it was like a dream year. And we looked back and I remember talking to one of my kids saying, hey, what do you remember from this year? And he's like, hey, you remember that time? It was actually in Jackson. He's like, and Jackson's five hours from our house, right? Like, remember that time in Jackson that we sat and threw rocks in the lake? That was awesome. And you're like, oh my gosh, really? That is, like, how did we get so caught up in all this other stuff when we could have we could have gone to that lake and tossed things in there, you know, every other weekend if we wanted to. Plus, there's a lake closer even if we wanted to. You know, like it was time right, yeah, yeah. together and and the experiences. So if I'm, if I'm hung up on stuff and I'm hung up on this kind of endless search for security and I realize that it's really not helping me at all and I want to make a change, what would you tell me to do? I think I would start by uh, just having a conversation around um, why I, 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 I like to think of it as like a purpose conversation. Like what's the purpose of X? So if it's, if, if we're talking specifically, let's just say money, you know, you're caught up with security and, and you think like, I just have to have this much saved or this much or that much. Um, I think you sort of back up and just say, okay, why? Like, where did you come up with that idea? What could, could that's, could that just be a story? I, well, I mean, I'm being gentle there. I guarantee you it's a story. So I would I would define what is it that you want and what are you currently doing? And then just just be gentle with yourself about that gap because there will be a gap. No going into it that no one I've ever met has a like if those if that was a if those were two circles. I've never seen a perfectly overlapped Venn diagram between what you what you say you want and what you're actually doing. In fact, most of the time there's almost no overlap. <laughs> And that gap, just label it gently, like that's what's called being human. So I would just lay, I would just take the time to have a conversation. The conversation should go something like this: um, Why is money important to me? Like, what's the purpose behind this? What am I trying to do? I would, I would free, I would brainstorm that. Like, talk it out, write it, do whatever, whatever it is. You know, go on a hike, do whatever you need to do. Get that written down somewhere. Yeah. And then I would take that and I would compare it gently to how you're currently spending your money and how you're currently spending your time. I'd, there's an old saying, the checkbook and the calendar never lie. Experiences are more valuable than stuff. And experiences may even be more valuable than security. Stuff and security aren't necessarily all that related other than money. And that to me is the value of adventure, is the fact that it's it's an investment you go in one side, you invest time and energy and maybe even a little bit of money into it and out of the other side comes a better version of you. Now, those things aren't always like heroic or like, oh, ah. they're often they're incremental like we talked about earlier. They're just little subtle changes, but it's a better version of you. 
You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Carl Richards. To learn more about what he's doing, check out his New York Times column, The Sketch Guy. As a podcast, Safety Third is kind of like a dance party. Sure, you can have fun on your own, but boogieing down is always better with friends. So tell your friends about the show. You can find us on Instagram at safety third underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Alex Park edited this episode. Additional production help from Studio Box New Zealand. Music by my brother. Yes, my brother. Brendan, my navel looks like a moldy bagel. O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitzka Hall is our creative director. Becca Hall is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Alrighty, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight. Keep it loose. And remember, safety third. 